And now. And now. And now. And now. And now, now we go to. And, and now. And now. And now. And now. Today's episode, we're talking about the prison industrial complex and how the prison industrial complex is in place in Israel and also how it is in place in the United States. This whole entire movement that we are all living in of the Black Lives Matter movement and trying to fix a very, very broken justice system is something that is very personal to me specifically. I lost my cousin Brendan Glenn at the hands of an LAPD officer in 2015. Um, There are lots of specifics with his case, but basically the DA ruled not to move forward with the case when... Uh, many others thought that it should be, and this was just an example of um, racism and a broken justice system that tries to forget people and diminish the value of people's lives. The way that the media also treated Brendan shows how broken our system is with labeling him as homeless black man instead of labeling him with his name to try to show that his life was not as valuable as someone else, right? So this is something that I definitely feel very passionately about, And I always have, but I have never gone out of my way to educate myself on this prison industrial complex and on the intricacies of our government and our police system. And that is something that I am working very hard to do now so that I can be a better activist for Brendan, my cousin, and other people who have lost their lives to the police in these unjust ways and help try to find solutions to fix this system and make America the country that it was meant to be by the people for the people. I spoke with Adesia Jones. Adesia is a entrepreneur who owns her own business, and she's also a very active activist. She spent a year in Israel while she was studying at NYU, and she learned all about the prison state and the conditions of Palestinians in Israel. This caused her to become an activist for showing the parallels between the conditions in Israel and the conditions in the United States. Also just showing how government can be used to re-enslave people over time. Before speaking with Adesia, I read her essay about the similarities between the prison state in Israel and the prison state in the United States. I also read two chapters of a book called Freedom of a Movement. Now, both of these readings are available on our website, andnowpresents.com. Feel free to read these before or after listening to our conversation. My name's Adesia. Yes, I've not intensely or by any means find myself to be an expert of the prison industrial complex. I myself would say... I began my studies of the prison industrial complex when, while I was in college during my junior year. Um, I was about 21 years old, actually 20 years old when I began, and I was stationed in occupied Palestine or Israel when I first to really began to delve into the prison industrial complex. I had heard the word thrown around and I had come to understand police brutality in some form in America for African-Americans, but it wasn't until I was in occupied Palestine that the reality of what a militarized state became apparent to me out my doorstep each day. And I had to reckon with how I was a part of that regime as an American. And then I had to reckon with the system I was a part of 
innately, you know, my own people and what I was a victim of as a collective in America as an African-American or an indigenous American and what the, the system at hand is designed to do, which is the same thing it does in Occupy Palestine, which is the same thing we see it doing so actively right now. Um, it's really just showing us true colors. These true colors have always been there. We just now have a heightened state of awareness. And obviously, with all the current events, we have all of the problems in the system coming to the surface. I think there's so much more to be learned and I'm happy to be here and talk about it because like me and like so many others, we're not informed about African-American history in the slightest, right? We don't even learn about slavery. So how and when was I supposed to learn about prisons if they were the amendment to slavery, if that's what we were told, you know, I can enslave people if they do a crime then why was I never taught about slavery then of course because I was not meant to know about it because it has to be unknown in order for it to operate in the way that it is today right because if I'm taught slavery ended then I can just put it to bed but if I was taught that slavery was amended suddenly I have to look into what it was amended into which is the prison system so of course it wasn't taught to me in school it wasn't taught to any of us in school we are taught in school that the slavery ended in the United States when the Civil War ended and that that is what the Civil War did. But that is, in fact, not true. Yes, it was a step in the right direction, but there were still the Jim Crow laws. The Jim Crow laws were put in place right after the Civil War, and they were in place in some places until 1968. Now, the Jim Crow laws are basically a way to segregate and diminish people who are not white in the United States. So basically making them secondary citizens where they have to use separate bathrooms, separate schools, etc. Now, if you think about this happening in 1968, that was actually not that long ago. Probably a lot of people's parents were alive during that time, and probably some people even listening were alive during that time. And I think that just puts a lot of things into perspective about how much progress still has to be made with this movement. We have to go out of our way, like I did. I had to go out of my way to understand my privilege in a global context as an American uh, when I was in the state of Israel, but really the occupied land of Palestine, and had to reckon with who I was and what was happening around me is the same reason everyone needs to reckon with who they are and what's happening around them right now. There is this complete lack of education on these things that we would all see as truth if we were educated on them. For instance, this idea of a prison state, which I also have just learned about extremely recently. And I think a lot of these listeners maybe are just hearing about it right now. And I think that that is one of the largest problems that we have in our country is that we are not educated on what is happening in other countries such as Palestine and we're not able to make those correlations between the similarities and differences between our government and theirs, right? Because we say things like, obviously, you know, things in Palestine are horrible and people are being treated horribly, but we don't understand that there are so many correlations between what is happening there and what is happening here. And something else that I think is really important to educate our listeners about and that I have also been educated about as someone who didn't know very much about this topic, which is what is the difference between um, prison abolition and prison reform? That is such an important question to ask ourselves right now. And it goes back to what I mentioned just now about the reform 
initially to slavery, right? That landed us in a place where you can take people who are prisoners and use them as slaves. You can use them as essentially free labor. And looking at that and then looking at the difference between what is the difference between abolition and reform, well, abolition calls for us to destroy the system at hand. It calls for us to, similar to how we think we destroyed slavery, to say we can no longer, you know, privatize prisons and enslave people for labor. Um, that is wrong. So we have to then abolish our prison system because that's what it's built on, right? Um, prison reform says, you know, maybe we can adjust things about the system, but just like we reformed slavery or amended it rather into the prison system, how can we reform our way out of the prison system? It will always stand on the same pillars, attacking the weakest people of a given society. If it's the disabled, the homeless, um, different minority groups, it will always attack those people. So we ask ourselves, what does prison reform look like? Well, even with whatever reform we make, if we don't destroy the system, it will always stand on those pillars of oppression. So people will always be hurting, even if it's slightly less harmful, even if it's maybe done in a different way, it will always attack and target the same people. Abolition calls for us to remember these people. It calls for us to stop looking at prisoners as statistics and to start looking at them as individuals. We can't ignore prisoners. We have to ask them what's going on. So many of us have no idea what goes on in prisons. Almost no one is allowed to walk through the doors of a prison and monitor anything unless, you know, I myself am a part of that system, which is already, as we've discussed, oppressing others. So how can it be that prison reform can fix what we're talking about? It really can't. Prison reform can teeter on it. Prison reform can tiptoe and, and talk about the, some of the issues. But at the end of the day, prison abolition is what will ultimately grant us at least the next step of liberation into thinking about a system that doesn't oppress others. Yeah, and I think that ties so much so back to the idea that we're dealing with right now in the United States, which is to defund the police as, a for, as opposed to, you know, reforming the police or, or changing how we're training them and things like that. Because I think what a lot of people do not realize with this movement of defunding the police is that the attempt has been made to change their training. We put cameras on police officers, they turn them off. The problem is the system that's in place, which is just like the prison system and brings us back to the idea of what's going on in Palestine. So something else that I thought um, is something that is becoming extremely relevant right now in the United States with everything that is going on with the Black Lives Matter movement is the idea of political prisoners. Now, this is something that I learned about by reading your paper about Palestine, but I would love for you to talk about this more because I feel like this is something that is definitely starting to happen here and has also happened in the past if you really look into it with how the United States has treated activism. Right, right. Um, yes, I so desperately felt the need to talk about my research in political prisoners because of the era that we are in and we really have always been in, as you discussed, but it's becoming more prevalent and it's on the surface now so we can engage with it more. Um, and these political prisoners, well, what, are, what are we talking about political prisoners? These are people who are incarcerated based off of their political beliefs and ideologies, people who are incarcerated based off of you know their organizations they're a part of. So when we look 
at Palestine, the political prisoners are anyone who's can be imprisoned off of just a security threat. And the IDF has the right to incarcerate anyone for up to six months, no trial, no charge, no disclosed evidence, um, just because of a security threat. So if they say, you know what, you're a threat to the state of Israel, come with us. That's the reason why people have been incarcerated for completing censuses in Jerusalem, right? The PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, goes through to count. Let's count how many Palestinians are actually present. That is a security threat to Israel, you know, a state that does not want knowledge of how many Palestinians are present in Jerusalem or doesn't want to even acknowledge East Jerusalem at all as a part of Jerusalem. Those people are a security threat because they're a threat to the security of Israel as a state, security of what Israel wants to be. And it has, you know, very, very clearly made that statement that they want to, you know, have Jerusalem as their own, entirely claim the land of Palestine ultimately is their goal. You can see it easily through their strategies, how they have occupied land since 67. And so if you look into political prisoners there, it just becomes so clear because how many people of the PLO, I, I think it, at the political legislative council even uh, in Palestine that have been, that have been, sorry, incarcerated is about one third. I mean, one third of the council members have been in jail at some point, have been tortured, their family members saw after, all of the above. And it's such a clear understanding of political prisoners when you look at it through the lens of Palestine, Palestinian um, activists and politicians. And I talk about that now because here we are sitting in Brooklyn, New York, where protesters every night are being held captive um, for over 24 hours now. ABS Court, BS is no longer and stated in New York. So they don't need a trial and they don't need to charge anyone. They can withhold them for over 24 hours. And that is tiptoeing onto what Israel has been doing to political prisoners for so long, which is, um, you know, doing that same thing, no captive, no trial, no charge disclosed for six months. And they can renew that six months at any point. So if the six months pass and this person still is on a trial, they can just say, you know what, you're still a security threat. So once again, I'm going to hold you for another six months. And they do that for years and even decades and sometimes for life. Understanding that and understanding what we're tiptoeing on here with political prisoners, people who are being held captive just for protesting, right? Just because of their beliefs, they're standing up for their beliefs and suddenly they're a threat to the state. So they're being held captive. Um, That's really, really scary because those are the same people that are our potential organizers. Those are the same people who, you know, are going to start this revolution. So by holding them captive, we're not just doing the work of holding them for 24 hours. Now they can't do anything for their cause for 24 hours. It's bigger than that. We're attacking them. We're showing them our force. We're showing them our threat. We're threatening them. Ultimately, we're saying, if you keep doing what you're doing, if you keep taking action, keep protesting, and keep standing up for your ideology, we will come for you, and we will hold you captive. So every time they think, should I go and stand up for my belief, they have to have some fear instilled to say, if I do, these people will come for me. They'll come and hold me captive or they'll come hurt me and my family. And looking at that and looking at political prisoners and the threat we are imposing onto people for organizing, for believing in something that is against um, what we currently have as a system is 
so scary and it's scary because it's already hurting us as a movement in ways we can't understand psychologically this is a threat to the soul and spirit of an activist right um how many people can take being beaten on how many people can take being held for even 24 hours in jail without massively being so scared out of doing it again right not that many maybe some people will rile them up to keep going but a lot of people it will infringe on even leaving their home in the first place to go to protest if they see footage of people getting hurt suddenly you know my mom is going to tell me stay home don't get hurt or i'm going to think to myself wow i i, I shouldn't go because i'm scared of getting hurt i mean we as humans are only physical beings at the end so how can we not have fear for our life how can we not factor that in when we're thinking about our ideologies and our political beliefs and why is it that the state our country can threaten us based off of those beliefs it doesn't it's some completely injustice it's completely wrong you know in the u.s we have this kind of national not kind of we have this extremely nationalistic culture right and because of that, it is very easy for us to see things going on in Palestine or in these other countries and say, wow, that is so unjust. I can't believe that they're going through that. That's so insane. I can't imagine living in a world where that's my reality. But it is our reality. We just don't realize it because we are not educated on these things and we don't know these things and these things are very hidden from us because we're given this kind of mainstream media outlook on how to look at things. And I think that that's one of my favorite things about your paper that it really taught me about was that there are so many similarities, yet we can see another country's injustices so black and white. But with our country, it we always put so much trust in our government mm -hmm. and so much trust in our police because we want to believe that the United States is this greater than country that will always be by the people for the people. But in reality, we have moved so far away from that at this point in history. Like, for instance, in your essay, you talked about torture tactics that are used in um, Israel, which is, you know, you talked about beating people, you talked about um, threatening their loved ones, you talked about solitary confinement, you talked about um, interrogating them for 12 hours, and these are all things that the United States police have been using as tactics ever since the very beginning, yet when we hear about them happening there, we're shocked but they right. happen here every single day. Right, no, you're completely right. You're completely right. And if you look at how they're happening in Palestine, um, it, it should instill even more fear in you, right? Because if the political prisoners in Palestine can be held indefinitely, ultimately, in, in solitary con uh, confinement, and they can be interrogated for 12 hours, and these threats against people in their community and people they love can be made, uh, those officers can take any information these prisoners are willing to give them, which is why I say this is a spiritual fight, right? Interrogating people like that, breaking them off from their loved ones and their home and community, and then interrogating them for all that they have to potentially give you, and then taking that and attacking those people. Um, that is so much more than just hurting your physical at that point. That is hurting all, all that you are, all that you're made of. Um, it's attacking you from all angles angles everything that you love is being attacked at that point so we need to be intensely fearful of what our state is doing right now because the system 
it can be clearly seen as unjust in its tactics alone. If they can do this to one person, obviously they can do it to a hundred, to a thousand, to hundreds of thousands. So why do we have to wait until a hundred thousand cases come out where every single one was unjust for us to move? We need to move now. We need to understand that this is so dangerous. The same tactics we see against Palestinians being able to see or talk to their loved ones or their freedom of movement at all. We call the West Bank an open-air prison or Gaza an open-air prison. And when we use terms like that, we have to look at what the prison is then. If the prison is out of sight, if people can't communicate to their loved ones, all of these things, they don't have, they don't have the basic anything. Prisoners have just completely been forgotten in every way. And then on top of that, they have a consistent threat to their own life, being in a place of violence. If I'm doing something crazy, radical, and I get held as a political prisoner and someone is intense on getting information out of me, like suddenly it's so much bigger than me. I, I as one political prisoner, could, could turn into 50 political prisoners of my same organization. That's why we should be so terrified um, because one political prisoner is not just one person. It's an attack on a belief. It's an attack on an ideology. And many of us withhold that ideology. So we need to be up in arms over one person who is being withheld for their ideology, especially given that we have that same ideology. We are at the same level of threat, even if we're not imprisoned as that person behind bars. Why would we wait until it's by the hundreds of thousands of people? We need to talk about political prisoners now, you know, now more than ever. Something else that you talked about in your essay was the um, fact that people in Palestine were imprisoned for posting things on social media. And I have heard of cases of people already being arrested for simply showing up to protests days after they have not been at any protests because of things on social media or tracking people and things like that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that aspect, because it seems as if, very sadly, this might become present in the United States as well. A recent example of this where people are being silenced because of their social media presence and not actually for committing any specific crime is in Seattle. The SPD arrested the man who shot the video of the kid who was pepper sprayed by a cop. I think a lot of us saw this video. It's very graphic and very sad, especially since it is a child. Now, they arrested this person who took this video days after the video was released, which means that they found out who it was through social media, therefore silencing this person's activism. Incarceration is so common in the state of Israel that, of course, the FBI is watching people. Why do we even ask ourselves if they're watching us, right? Why do we even ask ourselves? And we know that in a state built off of security, if I'm a security threat, to any organization just for what's say even if I just you know really actively believe that people shouldn't wear blue shirts and like I'm like okay I'm like really against blue shirts I'm gonna do everything I can to be like no one's gonna wear a blue shirt ever again like what am I but a threat to blue shirts correct like someone who sells a company about blue shirts is gonna go out of their way to make sure I don't talk out and say why blue shirts shouldn't be worn. So 
of course I'm a threat to a system right now. Of course I am. I'm speaking out on a system that's privatized that so many people benefit on, so many people have an intent on gaining from. Um, massive brands, like I talk about in my paper, like L'Oreal or own privatized prisons and so many more that you would never anticipate. Um, that That is what we need to recognize, that there is a clear motivating factor for why people would be uh, incessant on finding the people like myself and others who are going out of their way to get this information out and going out of their way to really organize against this cause. Of course, they have an intent on researching people like me. The same reason that blue shirt company would have the same reason to research someone who was posting all about why you shouldn't wear blue shirts. Of course, I am literally attacking a profit-making system for someone. Of course, they're going to come and research why and try to stop me. Basically just, you know, you're silencing mass groups of people, as you also talked about with social media, and just talking about the conditions in prison in Palestine and the conditions in prison in the United States right now. Mm. Well, the conditions of prisons in Palestine is a unique case, right? Because many of the people are imprisoned within the state of Israel, even if they are taken from the West Bank um, or whatever is considered their own land, even if it's in East Jerusalem, and but they are still incarcerated on the land of Israel. So the power dynamic in that is so profound, um, especially because it's against many international laws to do such a thing, um, to incarcerate people of an occupied land outside of that territory. So to bring them into your own territory and have them incarcerated. It says so much about their lack of rights, right? But if we look at our own prison system, how does it also do that to people? How does it also take people so far reach from their family? You know, it's like we're living in the stone age. How is it that I have to get a call from someone and I see, like I see in movies from 50 years ago and it has to be a telephone that you're putting quarters into um, every every minute you want to talk. I mean, how absurd is that? It costs 64 cents every 15 minutes to make a call in New York in prison, which is absolutely insane because we have this access to technology. I don't know why we haven't advanced in our prison systems and we're making it so that, you know, parents can't be present in their children's lives. We're we're isolating them and taking away their voice of being activists for themselves and how they are being treated because even though you commit a crime and a lot of the times when you actually have not committed a crime and you were in prison, you absolutely should have the right to communicating with others outside of that system that you're stuck in. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And so we, we think about what, what that feels like and what that looks like for the prisoner and how really inhabilitating it is. I mean, this is a system of prisons was built on the idea of rehabilitation. What kind of rehabilitation happens at all in prisons? So little that it's so difficult to even start the conversation about rehabilitation at all. Even when we think about it in the idea of abolition, it's like we don't even know how to rehabilitate people because we have never known how to rehabilitate people. It's so revolutionary to say abolition movement because everyone thinks, what's going to happen to the bad guys then? What's going to happen to the rapists then? What's going to happen to the people who are stealing? Well, why don't we actually look at why they're stealing? Why don't we actually dissect and look behind what they've been taught? right or the kind of access they have economically why don't we look at why women are so abused 
issues, why domestic violence happens at home. Why don't we actually discuss these things and these problems? But the prison then becomes the 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 you know the net that catches all these people of society that have these issues we don't want to look at in the face and the prison does nothing to look at those issues it does nothing to rehabilitate those people it does nothing actually but to impose more violence upon their lives and to the point that they're you know either almost surely going to come back to prison even if they get let out or even if they do leave prison, they leave at such a lower status of society. They can't get jobs. They can't even spend time in certain facilities, right? It's absurd how we design the system to quote unquote rehabilitate people when all it does is put a brand, like literally brand them with this. Now they have to walk through this system um, where they already were targeted, which is probably why they ended up in prison in the first place. And now they have to walk around as that person being targeted and they have these things on their record. And I just want to say really quickly how easy it is to have something on your record. I mean, I have a warrant out for my arrest because I once didn't pay for the subway when I was like 19 and to this day, I'm like, I should have dealt with that. And now I'm scared because I don't want to go to a protest and get stopped. And now I, I have something on my record that could land me in jail so easily. And I say that that as an NYU student who is not necessarily targeted in the city. I was in a safer environment than most. And I still easily can end up with a war on my arrest and can be easily targeted. And for someone who was, say, raised in... Brooklyn and maybe Flatbush or Crown Heights where communities that are predominantly black and so targeted by police have certain parts of the community that are just known for police staking out at all times, 24 hours of the day surveillance by officers. In communities like that, that every single day, so many warrants are given out to black men more than anyone, but all black people, the community, how, how can we look at that and not be worried for those people who have already had, you know, little um, what's it called? Strikes against them. They have one strike, two strikes. How easy is it to just have a couple simple strikes and then be at the wrong place at the wrong time and end up in prison for just heinous crimes that are so minuscule and actually not a threat to society at all? But still, even with those people, we don't discuss rehabilitation. Even for those people, they're still put into a violent institution that breeds violence. And then pushed out of it with more things on their record, more reason to be aggressive because p prisons force you to be aggressive. You have to defend yourself to guards. You have to defend yourself to other inmates who are also in the same position as you because the guards are so abusive and the system is so abusive. How could I not leave that system even being more of a perpetrator of whatever violence I was put in there for. I mean, I'm not saying it's 100% of prisoners, but I'm saying we have a problem. We never have had a solution to rehabilitating people. Then another thing that is so important to mention is that especially in the Black community, once you're on the record and once you're arrested one time, you will be constantly profiled over and over and over again. For example, let's say that someone gets arrested for shoplifting or some some, some something small, maybe even just jaywalking. Now you're in the system and especially if you are a black man or anyone of the black community now you are someone who has been profiled so let's say they get another call for a similar crime mm -hmm. they're going to automatically say that it's you because you're already in the system and that's profiling and that's making it so that you're going to live this narrative for the rest of your life because of one crime that you committed and they're going to just keep putting you back into this system which is in a way a form of re-enslaving people 
Exactly. So uh, I have another point that um, someone brought to us, which is, um, can capitalism exist without racism? Now, what would this look like? This is such a complicated thing, because after reading the text that you suggested, I learned how much corporations profit from prison systems. Mm -hmm. So how much capitalism is actually so embedded in racism? Um, So I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on what a world where capitalism exists without racism would look like. The corporation you mentioned is um, actually G4S. It is definitely um, an example of what we're talking about economically, which is it's essentially like the Walmart of prisons and different war gear on things that allow for surveillance states and prison states to create themselves. So everything you would need from building the separation fence in occupied Palestine to um, giving our own military weapons is all going to be things that G4S um, helps supply to different nations. And this is a company that is comparable to Walmart. I think it's the third biggest corporation in the entire world. We're talking about a corporation that has so much economic pull um, and gives arms to so many different groups of people and specifically centers around, you know, imperialism and um, just so many prison states that already attack, like we discussed earlier, um, the people that the system has failed, which are people of color, people of low income, people who are not able-bodied or mentally, um, mentally healthy. So when we talk about can racism be abolished under capitalism, it is very tricky. These systems are so intertwined that I don't think I can really say because could could we have capital? It's hard to say because in a capitalist society, right, what happens to these people who are at the bottom tier, they are turned into capital. That's what we see in the in the prison industrial complex in America, that we see these people are enslaved to turn a profit. They're so profitable. Why else would it be so expensive to bail them out? If the system was about justice, I shouldn't be able to pay any amount of money to bail someone out. I should have to, you know, rehabilitate them to bail them out. But that's not even an option in our system because it's never been about that. It's always been about money. So if people are in there to turn a profit, why is that? Because I'm in a capitalist society that is fueled on capital and capital is more valuable than people. I don't need healthy people. I need a healthy capital. So in that, it is so easy for racism to exist because racism only needs something little to cling to, to oppress someone. Yes, white supremacy, but money it is money that it clings to. I mean, racism clings to money as the oppressive tool. Even if you look at racism in America and what we're talking about with the prison industrial complex, yes, Black Americans make up um, 40% of who's incarcerated in America. And it's that unjust number that calls us to say, yes, Black Lives Matter, of course. And we have to stand up for Black people because they are so disproportionately incarcerated. If they only make up, what, 13% of the population, how on, how on earth can they be nearly half of the prison population? Clearly, we uh, target these people. But more than that, and bigger than that, rather, I don't think it's more than that, but I think it is a... a a conversation to start with people, especially those who think that they're not affected by this system being at hand. And it is those half of the people that are incarcerated, the white civilians, right? 
those people under this system are, you know, they're also going to be just as oppressed in ways. Those prisoners are just statistics too. They are just as forgotten. Um, we don't rehabilitate them either. They are victims to a failed system as well. And I think if you look at it like that and you look at how capital works in the prison system, it does more than just creates racism. It creates the ability to forget about people for their own capital gain. It creates numbers, people become numbers. So these people in jails are not people, they are numbers. When we think of it like that, what does capitalism do in our society? It allows for us to treat people, treat money as more important than people. So can capitalism exist without racism? I don't think so because of where racism is today. I would take for such a perfect society just for capitalism to even be functional as anything that doesn't oppress someone. I don't know if that could happen because I've never seen it and I don't see it as a possibility in the capitalist society we're in today. So I don't think that when we talk about abolishing the prisons, it will end there uh, when it comes to abolishing racism. If I want to abolish racism, I have to go farther than the prisons. Yes, abolish the prisons will assist us in talking about racism, but abolishing the prisons just assists us in talking about more than that, the justice system. We're not talking about abolishing prisons because that will end slavery. No, that's not the case. The ramifications of slavery need deep reparations and repairs that we have to really sit down with ourselves to consider the ways we've affected different communities in order to begin that process. And that doesn't end with African-Americans, right? That goes into so many different indigenous people of the America as well. So when I talk about abolishing the prison system, it's more than, it's more than capitalism. It's more than uh, so many other of these concepts that we've been throwing around. It's really just about instating some sort of plane of justice. And then from there, we can start to discuss how we can abolish uh, unjust capitalist society and how we can start to, um, you know, give back to people we've disenfranchised for so long under capitalism. This discussion about prison abolition is just a piece of the puzzle, really. It's just a piece of the, the framework we need to build for a society that doesn't oppress others. It's mm. equivalent in countries all over the world. Mm. Um, and it's something that we all just need to really go out of our way on to educate ourselves about the long-term effects and the long-term things that have been taught into all of us. For instance, we were talking to someone earlier today who was talking about the education that they have been doing. And I think that one of the most important things right now for the listeners here is this is just one aspect of education. There's so much more education that we all need to have. Yes, no, entirely and completely. I right now have an influx of people who are willing to finally listen to my work and willing to engage in my activism in ways they would have never been interested in had all these tragedies not happened on the news. And I'm not saying that to say those people are wrong. A lot of people are just complicit in a system that never forced them to think more. I don't want those people to feel attacked. I'm not trying to attack anyone. I'm just trying to state facts. I mean, nobody cared and no one can argue because look at Right, it's happening now. People are getting more educated and they're realizing how naive and ignorant they were in the past towards even just believing this system had anything to do with justice at all. And it wasn't just an amendment to slavery, right? That This is now becoming less radical to say. 
And I appreciate people who are doing that work to educate themselves, as I always have since I started this work in, in understanding uh, the systems at hand that we are fighting against. That being said, I feel like people who come to me and are saying, oh my gosh, I stand with you. Of course I stand with you. What can I do? Can I send money? Can I support you in some way? I want you to know that I support you. Please know that I support you. I I appreciate and I understand why those people feel a need to speak to me, especially because I've been so vocal about my feelings and I appreciate their support emotionally and I appreciate their prayers spiritually. But what ultimately is going to rad- radically change the system will not be prayers. It will not be anyone's support for me as a black woman and as an activist. It will be people going out of their way to educate themselves. That is the only thing that will rectify this system. I have friends who, they might be white men, doesn't matter though, that they have gone so actively into understanding their own privilege that I would never think to them as a, you know, representation of a cis white patriarchal society. I I look to them as representation of the future society where those same people that used to be entitled now have gone out of their way so actively to engage in these things and learn about these things that they're actually activists. And I'm dropping the term ally because ally is nothing. Ally is complicit in my mind. I'm not looking for allies. I'm looking for activists. I'm looking for other people who are going to be as willing and to go out of their way as I have been to educate themselves and then speak out about things to educate yourself on as any topic of education. Once you learn about it, it's easy to talk about, right? Like it's like saying, I want to talk about, I don't know, the English language. So of course I have to educate myself on the alphabet. Of course I need to go out of my way and learn my vocabulary just so I can talk about the English language. If I want to talk about it, I have to learn the terms to use it and to talk about what it is. So that's the same thing. It's as simple as just learning the terms so you don't feel so uncomfortable. You know, if you go out of your way to educate yourself, suddenly you're naturally an activist. Once you have this information before you and you go out of your way to understand it and process and digest it, it doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen in a week. It happens over lifetimes. This is why we're on earth to, you know, tear ourselves apart in ways and learn and unlearn and reassess the things we've been taught. So why not do those things is once you do it's impossible not to be an activist personally i've had this information you know stored inside me over the years and i wasn't as compelled to speak out because of whatever reason i was complicit but these things these crazy turns of events have activated these parts of me and it took nothing because they were already there right i already knew these things it simply took for the ripe moments for them to come out of me and i say that to say if you want to be an activist, don't wake up one morning and think, I'm going to start being an activist. Let me start looking for things I can share about. No, just start with education. If you simply educate yourself, you will become an activist indefinitely and forever. And you will have no choice because once you stop being ignorant, you have to speak out about the truth. You will know too much to keep it to yourself. It will feel wrong. The same way people will say, and I hate to draw comparisons, but the quickest thing that comes to mind is um, with vegan activists, right? So if someone becomes a vegan, 
everyone says, why can't vegans stop talking about veganism? Oh my gosh, they always are talking about being vegan. Well, once you go out of your way to become knowledgeable about food systems, about animal agriculture and where what's happening in the world, it's nearly impossible to not talk about it. And every time you eat, some someone's going to bring it up because if someone's eating meat, it's impossible not to call them out because you just have gone under your way to inform yourself. And suddenly it's like word vomit. Vegans can't keep it to themselves because they've informed themselves. And I say that as a reference point with this movement, it will be the same way with prison abolition. If you just research it and you know without a shadow of a doubt for every reason that abolition makes sense and that for every reason the prison system doesn't stand for justice, suddenly it's so easy to speak about. Suddenly every time someone says, what about the good cops? You don't think to yourself, well, yeah, what about the good cops? You instead are like, no, I actually know that the system is rooted in white supremacy and there's all these reasons why capitalism facilitates it and that the world is in the state it's in right now and reaping havoc. It becomes so simple, clear as day. So don't be so fearful of admitting that you're ignorant. Be like me and be excited about it. I was excited to at one point admit I was ignorant towards the conflict in Israel and Palestine. I was so happy to learn more and now look at I can speak about it. I wasn't like that a couple years ago. And I'm inspired by my own knowledge of different things to keep educating myself on new topics so I can keep speaking out and be a vessel for truth and justice. Uh, aspect of education is also so true when you look into police brutality for anyone who doesn't like what you said about people thinking, you know, there are good cops out there and that kind of aspect. Um, once you look into the police and how they treat people and how they treat black people and how much they profile black people and how much our media is constantly dehumanizing and profiling black people by referring to them as, you know, black man shot or homeless black man shot instead of saying their names when they're very aware aware of that that is all ways that it is giving us a racist ideology and keeping this system in place Mm -hmm. and it's the words that we use so much of it is the words that we use how can we shift the conversation if everything we've talked about with prisons we've not been educated on and it's never been about rehabilitation, suddenly we have to go out of our way to find new terms. What will it look like for people to really get the help that they need if we don't know those words yet? When it comes to discussing prisons, we have to now find those words. We cannot just study what's before us. We have to go out of our way and be get creative, right? We have to look at other countries and look at how they're dealing with prisons. Why does why doesn't Sweden need to have, you know, so many people in prison? How why and how? It's not like more people in America are born rapists or born murderers or born X, Y, and Z. It's not that we're inherently different, correct? So there has to be something more we can look at as a society that doesn't begin or end with the prison. It will begin with us stopping shying away and being fearful of certain groups of people who may have some issues that need to be rectified, but throwing them in a prison cell does nothing to help them. It does everything to breed more violence. Realistically, we just have to be willing to look at our demons. And in the U.S., we love to act like we're this perfect nation built on freedom. But clearly, if someone can walk before you and say, put your hands up, like, you have the right to remain silent, whatever they say. (laughs) Like, let me handcuff you and throw you in a car and enslave you indefinitely, pretty much. Like, that's not a free state. How is it it's a free state if at any point someone can come and take my freedom away? It's the same shit with a slave master, right? Same thing. 
we cannot ignore the parallels anymore. I mean, it was it was hard for so long. And I think as African-Americans, we have so much tragedy and so much trauma inside us that we sometimes would rather just make beautiful art or sometimes rather shy away and find another way to cope and not directly talk about these things for what they are. But when we're in a world built on the backs of slaves, built on genocide, yes, we have to use these hard terms. We cannot be so traumatized away from just addressing what it is. It is genocide. It is mass incarceration. I'm not saying they're incurable. I just say we have to call it what it is. There's not going to be a new term. It's going to hurt a little. You have to acknowledge it. If I, as a you know mixed race woman, I can acknowledge that my lighter skin gives me privilege. If I can acknowledge that walking into a room, people will show me more respect just because I'm an able-bodied individual. If I can acknowledge these things, I, it's okay. And if I can reflect on my younger self and how she couldn't acknowledge them and how she might have been complicit in a system that benefits able-bodied people or benefits people of a lighter skin tone, and I can look at her and think, wow, like she didn't know, but now she does, and she's no longer an ableist or she's no longer colorist in any way, then that is beautiful and that is growth and that is what people should look to, not as a way of demonizing themselves. To acknowledge your privilege is really such a beneficial thing, not for people around you, but for yourself as well. You can start to heal yourself in ways you didn't understand you were hurt. And suddenly you realize that by oppressing others, you were oppressing yourself as well in little ways. Because suddenly it's like when I lose my able body, if I do, God forbid, at some point, I won't hate myself so much. If I at some point, you know, walk with a cane and a limp and, you know, lose feeling in parts of my body, I'm not gonna say I'm a less than just because I'm not as able-bodied as I once was because I actually addressed the fact that I could have been ableist at 20 years old and I suddenly acknowledged the fact that people who had less able bodies needed to be more amplified and needed to, you know, just have a voice most of the time where they were lacking. If I can say that then, then suddenly as an older individual, I don't have to hate myself for losing my able body or losing something that I once didn't understand was valued in society for what it is. So just to understand privilege is beautiful for yourself and others is what I say. Thank you all so much for listening and I hope you are inspired to continue your growth and activism. Thank you to our producers, Javier Galarza and Carlos Pantin. I am the founder of And Now Presents, Grace McCarthy. And everyone out there, just keep learning, keep growing. And we are all in this together. Thank you.